I think where we saw the big opportunity, and this was from the beginning, was insurance companies and kind of the managed care network is very interested in keeping people home and living independently. It's in their financial interest to do that. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders. Welcome back to Leaders of B2B. Today, my guest is Sambit Mistra. Sambit, I would love if you would give an introduction to the audience of yourself and your work so we can get to talk about your business journey, lessons learned, and all the other great things that we usually do here. Sure. Thank you, David, for having me. My name is Sambit Mishra. I'm the founder and CEO of QMedic. And QMedic is a device agnostic care management platform to help people live independently. We have been in business for about 13 years and happy to dig into how that business has evolved, but today we serve close to 20,000 members with disabilities and we work with nearly a hundred different managed care insurance plans around the country. And it's been a very exciting ride. So I'm happy to be here today to speak about it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm interested in hearing the Genesis story there, because I know I actually worked in assisted device field technology that would help people do different activities of daily living. So going back there to the beginning, obviously you saw demographic shifts and there was timing and all types of things and a hugely aging population. But what was that thinking like from that early idea stage? I always think about at some point there was you and maybe one or two other people sitting around most of the proverbial kitchen table. And I love to go back to those moments and think about how ideas initially become businesses that are now 13 years old, which is amazing. Yeah. And it sounds like you were almost at that kitchen table with us because the story's somewhat similar. We were actually at the MIT library where we weren't paying rent at the time. This was while it was my second year of graduate school and business school. One of my other co-founders was at the business school with me and we were jousting about different business ideas on a second year, which is what most second year business students do. They're not actually checked into like classes and stuff. We had at the time met our third co-founder, Fad Albanali, who was at the Media Lab. He was a research scientist there. But I mean, it was very much like an infancy. We were interested in a high level in wearable technology. This was a time when the Fitbit was in the pre-order phase. So it was very much, there was a lot of hype. And then, but there wasn't really kind of a clear path for any companies of what are we going to do here? Are we going to focus on the quantified self opportunity, which is generally healthier adults or and children? Or is there an opportunity in kind of the I don't want to just say the older adult market, but the chronic care market, the higher risk market. And so it's at a very high level, the thesis was, okay, that's a market that doesn't care as much about data, doesn't care about sensing technology for sure. You don't have to do many interviews to figure that out, but it, it's, it was very clear to us that this is a population that needs things that are very simple. And that's what's endured in this population for a very long time. You know, I think it would take much longer than the time we have in this interview to discuss all the different things we tried 
Some of them are so outlandish and had nothing to do with the older adult market, but we were just putting out different use cases for our technology just at a very high level. We did everything from put our sensors on bulls for the Professional Bull Riding Association to essentially testing the spin of a Frisbee just to really get a sense of functionally what can you measure with sensors. And we knew that there wasn't really a business case for a lot of that. It was more to just see what the frontiers of the technology were. And this was in 2010. So very early in kind of the wearable sensing world. And so, you know, I think what we had going for us at that time in the Genesis story was that the cloud was becoming a gigantic thing where people were just talking about it all the time of, oh, the cloud is going to change the way we do business. And I think we were actually pretty excited by what are the industries where the cloud can really take things that are very archaic in nature and really don't have much of a back end, don't have servers, don't have software, but have endured for so long. And I think we've looked at the aging space and we saw this gaping wide hole of there was interesting technology. It endured. There was a recurring revenue model around specifically the medical alert market. And so I think at a high level, we were like, oh, that seems like a market where companies have done well. They penetrated. There's recurring interest, meaning a monthly need for members to have services because it's a life or death situation. So we were asked, and at that point, we were like, okay, we don't have a solution that per se, but we do have a very large market opportunity that we can go after. And I also was like, our co-founder, our CTO had really cool technology chops. So it wasn't necessarily directly applicable to what we were thinking about, but it turned out that he's a brilliant engineer. If he ever hears this podcast, I don't want it to pat his ego, but he's a brilliant engineer. You know, I think that it's something that I appreciated in my co-founders is that they were both kind of business-minded people. They are both business-minded people. Even though technology plays a role in our company, we always led with market opportunity and customer discovery. And I can get into that because there are interesting aspects of how we approach customer discovery, trying to take it from a very organic level. As I said, today we serve about 20,000 members with disabilities. We obviously start as there's a question of how you get one member. And then, and I think that's like the hardest thing is how you convince one person to use the service. Forget about pay for services. Just how do you convince one person to use it? But so what we did is we just did the old school thing of beyond paying people with gift cards to just learn about what are the problems they're facing? I think once we started to build some product that was in a very alpha, I don't even want to say beta phase, it was an alpha phase. We started driving into people's homes and asking people who fit our demographic, who we found through skilled nursing facilities. We just said, hey, look, this is going to be a service that's free for you. We want to just see if you can want to test it out. And most people were actually pretty amenable to the idea of, okay, well, if it's something that helps and these people seem like they're nice people, my co-founder and I were going in they were very welcoming. So this all happened in Massachusetts, where I ended up learning a lot more about the geography of Massachusetts than I ever expected to, where we were going, I would do five installs a day in the early days where I would be driving. If you're familiar with Boston, like there's essentially north of 93 on 93 and then south, so North Shore and South Shore, and just driving back and forth all day and <laughs> installing services for people, eventually convincing them to pay for it and also working with some partners who were giving us referrals. But that was the most interesting time in the company from a discovery standpoint, because we really had nothing. If you look at the early versions of our product, the hardware, one of them looked like an old school ham radio. And I have a picture of that somewhere, but it's, if I were a, a user at that time, I'd be, I would I'd be laughing us out of the room a little bit, just knowing, but it's because as a founder, you almost know too much and you, you get very self-conscious about what you're putting out. But yeah, we, that kind of how we started to evolve the product was start very old school. 
not getting paid, doing gift cards, then figuring out a way to get people to part with their money. Uh, and skilled nursing facilities also partnered with us. And since then, the channel has changed dramatically. But you know, I think that was all part of the customer discovery and then trying to figure out what the broader opportunities were. Yeah, and it makes me think you, in that 13 years there, there's all kinds of miniaturization. And that would have, you were doing what I think at the time in my consulting life, we were selling, you know, edge computing and edge connection to cloud and all that. So I don't even know if people say that anymore. But then you've got obviously a wildly changing landscape in healthcare over that period. I'd be curious to see what has it endured for that course of that 13 years, hardware, software, customers are probably all different. So what's the essence of it that's still there? Yeah. So interestingly, I think that, I mean, there were certainly many pivots in terms of the customer distribution, but one of the things we did that I didn't mention. So one of the ways we were funded was by the NIH. So we did a three NIH contracts through the SBIR program. Very fortunate to have had that because it was non-dilutive funding uh, and significant funding that essentially enabled us to build a backend cloud-based platform that would allow us to collect all of this different type of data, whether it's activity data, sleep data, annotated data from users, really, and then also build a dashboard on top of that, which is a dashboard that today care managers, nurses at health plans use. And obviously we've iterated on that significantly through customer discovery, but started with a cloud platform that we had built on the NIH Dime that they were saying, hey, we would be interested in using this in research and have researchers at universities from Harvard to University of Iowa, to Northwestern University, all these universities were saying, yeah, we would want researchers to maybe use this data for specific populations, Parkinson's, MS, cancer population, COPD. And we were like, well, that's actually very much coincidentally tied to what we want to do commercially. And so we were like, if you guys aren't going to have a claim on the system, meaning that we own all of our proprietary technology and we own the cloud, that's really important to us. So everything foundationally was built early on through those contracts on the software side. The hardware and the firmware is much more complicated in, in the sense that obviously we iterated on that as we went. As I said, the first version was like a ham radio that like no one would ever buy. And then it's you kind of iterate on it. You hire product design firms as you get more money and, and funding. And we work with a great hardware guy, one of the best in the business. And now we're just professionalizing our design more and more. So like the kernels of it still exist. We kind of approached it and we said, our beachhead market within care management is medical alert. You know, you're familiar with this market that I fall in and I can't get up. At the beginning of the conversation, I was telling you how this was an industry that had endured for 40 years. So I always say that we stand on the shoulders of giants. We have much respect for all of our competitors in that space where they had built this in like the 1970s and people were paying, whether it was people or insurance plans were paying for people to live independently and use medical or devices because it had a life or death function, even if it didn't have cloud capabilities, like the core proposition was, if you need help, you press this button. It's waterproof. It's a very simple proposition for any user to understand. And people who've had a fall or they're concerned about falls, this was something that was a common theme through all the customer discovery we've done. And I don't think that changes much, meaning that people will always reach a point. It's not age-driven. It's condition-driven where if they've had a fall, they have an exacerbated chronic condition, they are much more receptive to services like ours. And so I think we saw that as where there was a very enduring opportunity to build on. So it's like if you can 
essentially have that medical alert product at your core, which we do. We have a button people can call out. They can use a neck device or a wrist device. There's a mobile option. So there's in-home where you use it in the front yard, backyard, in-home shower. And then there's an outdoor option that works anywhere on the Verizon or AT&T network. But really we found it's like, okay, there are people across the spectrum. People who use the mobile device tend to be younger. And we saw that as an opportunity to capture a younger segment. People who are driving to the grocery store, there's a continuum and everyone, this is the sad reality of our lives. Some people kind of just accept it. This is the reality of our lives, which is you're on a continuum. And at some point we all die to be blunt. So it's prior to that happening, we obviously want to do things that improve quality of life. And we also want to make sure that people who are at risk are able to connect out with caregivers. And so to answer your question fully, like where do these pivot points happen and where do we adapt our technology? I think where we saw the big opportunity, and this was from the beginning, was insurance companies and kind of the managed care network is very interested in keeping people home and living independently. It's in their financial interest to do that because people who live in long-term care, those managed care plans lose that population. They don't get money from Medicare or Medicaid if the person ends up in long-term care. So we were like, okay, so they have an incentive to keep people at home. And it turns out that they've been doing this also for, I'd say, 20 years. But one of the things that happened for us was very interesting is that the founding of the company coincided with the expansion of Medicaid around the country through the Affordable Care Act. And so we saw this as a major opportunity to pitch QMedic as, you know, we're providing what's called a wavered service, a service where essentially people waive their right to long-term care and that's how they get coverage through a managed care plan. And then they get access to services like ours. So we went to health care plans and we said something very simple. We were like, look, for the same amount of money, you can use QMedic instead of the existing medical alert services you're paying for. And yet we're going to try to do more to help keep people out of the emergency room. And if we do that, that's in your best interest. So people were, you know, essentially uh, the decision makers we were going to were the utilization management departments, healthcare plans that were like, so what you're saying to us is that we can keep people in our purview for longer. We continue to get premium for Medicaid, Medicare for, and to provide service to these members. They don't end up in long-term care and that's beneficial to us. And at the same time, we're not paying upfront anything more than what we'd be paying these other medical alert companies. And so they really gravitated towards that. I think it's a lesson for anyone in B2B is how do you make something that's like, while you could pitch like, oh, I want to sell you an iPhone to an insurance plan, I'll say, we don't have a code to cover an iPhone. An iPhone's way too expensive for us. So we're not going to give out iPhones to our users, to our members, because that's a huge outlay that we're not going to see a return on versus if you give us a medical alert button, well, at the baseline, that's the service that you need. It's a waiver service. It's covered under a waiver. And then if you do all these other things for us, that has potential long-term. Maybe not on day one, but we're willing to take a risk on you, QMedic, because on day one, you're providing something that we're already providing at the same cost. And so I think that's something that we adapted around 2016, 2017, when we got into the managed care market. And that's when we started to see some real movement in the market and our footprint. So like there was a long time where we were stuck at like, I always joke with some of our early team where I was like, yeah, we were stuck at like 87 members. 87, it was very specific. And you're like, okay, how do we break out of 87 members and then move towards, you know, what's now 20,000? And obviously we want to continue to grow, but I think it was just because it really resonated with managed care plans. And, you know, those plans are ones like United Healthcare, Anthem around the country. So we work with different state plans, both Medicaid and what's called dual special needs, which is dual Medicare, Medicaid. 
but really that, yeah, their interest is keeping people at home for as long as possible. I hear that because I think of my business. Whose interest is this in? And really it's always does come back to this idea of who's going to make or save a tremendous amount of money if we frame this, I don't want to say pitch, but essentially that's what it is, right? This story matters to somebody in an enterprise, like the whole act of going to test that field, you know, into the, the black box of these large enterprises to find the one person who might care and then tune your story to fit them such they can actually grok that. That is a big challenge. It sounds like maybe that took a while to come around to. Yeah, it's so interesting though, because today I'm approached by healthcare entrepreneurs all the time who are they're out there looking for you know funding, they're looking for other support. And I often get the pitch that it resonates a lot with me because we struggle with this early of the cart and the horse, which is, okay, you're trying to sell this hardware, which there's a huge outlay for, you need funding for it. But there's a question of how do you get this into the market? And every entrepreneur wants to pitch like their vision 10 years ahead. It's, oh no, this is what we're going to have in the future. We're going to have all this clinical data showing why it's effective for this population. It's like, that's all great, but how are you going to get into market today? And I think at some point, because we struggled with that for so long, and at some point we're like, it was that point where I told you where we realized we're offering a wavered service. This is why it's like people should take this on today because it's no real risk to them, assuming that the basic core service, the medical alert product worked in a commensurate way to what's out there already. As long as the medical alert part, the call center, we had to configure all of those things. But essentially, once we built all of the core pieces of the medical alert platform, we were like, yeah, we don't have to have any of this cloud-based data. We're going to work for them on day one. And that's how you see a lot of plans. They react to that. It is, they take a conservative approach of, well, if there's no risk, that's great. We'll take that too. And we'll, and as we go, and if you guys prove it to us, we'll kind of increase our commitment to you guys, which is what's happened, right? Like you start and you're like, okay, I have to prove myself, but we also have a working medical alert service on day one. They're like, if that has to work, and we always believe that it has to work no matter what, but these other layers, and that's my encouragement for every entrepreneur is that, because it happens all the time. And literally, I was talking to someone yesterday. I don't want to speak specifically about the company because I want to breach any confidentiality, but I will say that like, person was struggling with this very thing of we have this hardware, this massive hardware, this outlay. They didn't pitch it this way, but we have this outlay that we need covered. And it's like, how do we get this into the market? And can you get a distribution deal signed on day one? How do you convince someone that this is better than the status quo? And the other thing I think that a lot of entrepreneurs in healthcare and true of every business is that there's a lot of people are concerned about well, the biggest competitor in their space, meaning like the known competitor. But a lot of the times what you're competing against is the member or the partner saying, I'm just going to do nothing. Like, I'm not going to buy anything. That's something that we confront too. I always say that to our team. It's like, actually our biggest competitor and no offense to the other real competitors in our space, but it's, it's that people just decide, you know what? I had a fall, but I'm going to get back up and I'm going to keep on living <laughs> because what you guys are offering is not compelling enough. And so I think that's what I often encourage the team to think about is like, you get things right for the user and they feel like this is something that's it's not obtrusive, like it doesn't get in their way where they feel like they've lost their freedom. It's something where they see the life or death aspects of the core technology. I literally had that conversation yesterday on a, a mentoring call, and it was exactly that. You need to understand that your competition is the inertia of people doing nothing. It's not that they could choose any number of other competitors. 
they don't even care to look in a B2B context. 95% of the available market is not even thinking about this challenge or problem. And businesses often fight over the 5%. And that's where essentially demand gen, or in this case of hardware, you got to have distribution to get a meaningful number of endpoints out in the field. And I think that we do a poor job training entrepreneurs about that exact issue, that it doesn't actually matter what your future data or you know vision is going to be worth because you need to think about how to pave the road to get there. Absolutely. And a micro level, if you think about the decision makers at most B2B enterprises, there's a conservative aspect to how they think about like new solutions. I mean, if their task is they're, they're the innovation coordinator, they may be a little bit more willing to take risks, but more often than not, you're selling the innovation person. And I see a lot of entrepreneurs, they're like in some incubator where the innovation people from the large companies like Verizon and like people are like, oh, you're so excited. But you realize that person does not have the authority you think they have to distribute what you're doing widely. In our case, with utilization management departments and like the heads of care management at say our Medicaid managed care plan, this is a fairly conservative group. And the craziest part is that the people who are responsible for the actuarial side, so the financial data, are not communicating with the care management. There's essentially two stakeholders who do not communicate. And so there's a question of, okay, am I going to try to convince them with a financial benefit of what we're doing? And if you're trying to sell the care management side, that won't matter. What they care about is something different. So you kind of have to remember who you're pitching to. And in healthcare, obviously, there's a number of minefields you go through, but I think that's something that why my advice to entrepreneurs is always like, try to figure out how you minimize the burden for them today, where, yeah, for them to say yes, it's a minimal ask. You're like, oh, I'll put this on 20 of your members and we'll try it out and you'll pay for it under waiver and we'll see how it goes. And more often than not, they see it and they like how we perform and they like our customer service. And then they're like, you know what? We're going to switch out other vendors for you guys because we really love what you guys are providing. And you have these additional layers that we're excited to embrace further. And then you start adding peripherals on, right? Like then you can start talking about, oh, we have this opportunity to add things like blood pressure monitoring for a specific population of congestive heart failure patients with a specific plan. And you pilot that, but it's like the pilot is not that risky because it's already layered on top of other things that you're getting paid for. This is like the fun part of being an entrepreneur is like, this is experimentation that if it doesn't work, yeah, you're transparent about it. You're like, this is very much a test. If it works, then yeah, you, we figure out a payment model for it. And if it doesn't, we've all learned. And I think that's really what you're building with your target is your prospects is, okay, I got to have trust first. If I don't have trust, I have nothing. We we're very careful now of like not overselling them on like everything that's going to come on day one. That whole thing you just said there that now comes naturally to you. I want everybody to notice and maybe even just rewind that because it's so important to, you got to know the vocabulary of the organization or the type of organization and the people you might be talking to, they will use words like waiver means something to them. And if you were yeah. to go in and use that word incorrectly or not even know that word, you just killed your credibility. And so be able to speak the language of the buyer once you finally figure out who the buyer is, like study that to no end. And that's a huge part that people 
miss when you do even, you know, in a hardware startup, you have a lot like an engineering or tech heavy type of foundership usually. And, you know, it's almost like the solution looking for a problem. Yeah, you're right, yeah. but with no connection to the real world that like the non-nerds can understand. And having built all that and spending X million dollars on stuff, software companies do this too, but it's hold on a second, who is going to buy this? Do you even know, or are you just imagining there's this thing sort of in the future, right? Yeah. You know, and I think it's really important. It's not just in applicable to healthcare, but it's like really getting to know the end user, even if they're not the ones paying, that kind of has to be the first order for in healthcare. It's particularly important because it's very easy to overlook the end user. And you're like, oh, no, we just have to figure out the payment model. But I think when we were going out and driving into people's homes, I would sit down. I wouldn't talk about product at all. I'd actually ask them about, you know, like what's going on in your day, in your life. You'd see all kinds of things where you have some people have friction with their families. And there's a question of who's paying for what services and how often are they seeing their adult children. And sometimes these arguments would end up in like full view where I would see people arguing with their adult children and in the home. And, you know, I think it gave me a lot of insight into what are the things that people are struggling with that we can help with? What are the things that we want to make sure our customer service side, even if it's not related to our product, is aware of that are going on in people's lives? People are dealing with things like financial abuse from relatives and caregivers. And, you know, I think those are things that you just develop an empathy that you can't really substitute for. And I think that's so important that I don't see how we could have ever built the company any other way without having gone through that phase. And then you figure out how to adapt it for care managers, for nurses, all these other stakeholders. But I think that's really the key thing. And the funny thing you mentioned before about, oh, like knowing the terminology and vocabulary, you had me laughing a bit because I remember that like specifically Dave and I, when we were those three people around the kitchen table, it was like, we would do these calls with prospects and healthcare, they would throw out so many acronyms. And we'd be like, yeah, of course, we know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, we got, we're all over the PPRQ. And like, it's like, we'd have to go back and be like, what's PPRQ? And you Google it. It's just, I do think, yeah, there's a little bit of fake it till you make it. But I think we obviously were always trying to learn very quickly. But that's really what you're saying. Like today we have certain knowledge about the space. We definitely didn't start out that way. We actually knew fairly little about the waiver world that we were entering. We just knew that it was one that was going to expand in part because of the trends that we saw at that time. So we thought, okay, this is a, a space we need to learn about quickly. And there, it's interesting because there are certain prospects that will enjoy educating you and there's a lot of prospects that won't. And they're almost testing your metal by throwing out a bunch of acronyms and words. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and these are people that know how to buy and they've been pitched endlessly for all these types of things. Everybody thinks they go to market with a pilot and you're like, well, there's nothing to lose. Like they should just implement my thing. And that's a known playbook. But then you have a credibility gap. I'm like, whose thing should I pilot? Cause I can't pilot all the things. There's this measurement of credibility and attention to detail. That I think these people develop their own type of heuristics that you don't even know you're doing when you're on the buy side. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that credibility gap, it's very hard to bridge. And I mean, I can think of whenever I think through what were the things that helped us bridge that credibility gap. We did bring in an advisor who was in the industry and been in the industry for a long time and was like a known name. And that helped a lot in the early phase in terms of thinking through product, thinking through how do we contract with the call center to make sure we were offering those things that were core to the proposition. 
I mean, there is this kind of cart and horse problem there. Of what do I have to do to just get people to sign up initially? And I feel like there's a little bit of voodoo around that. You can't always pinpoint it. It just, but yeah, you start to see that 87 number of members moves up and you're like, oh, it's no longer 87. And now more people are talking about us and they're sharing the story of us. And it's not just like Sambit, Dave and Fod communicating the message. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, th- I think that's so key is that, and I tell that to our team is like, what we want it now is we want other people talking about us and evangelizing us. We're the only ones saying Humedic is this great company, then we have a problem. You know, and that's something that I think we've been very, very diligent about is like making sure that care managers, which is our core stakeholder, these are the ones who are referring services that they feel taken care of, that they know how much we care about making sure that we reduce their burden day to day. And some of that burden is related to the medical alert, but a lot of it is around things like authorizations and eligibility and making sure that their members are still eligible. So we start to build in services that help them do that. And you realize you're like, you could build a whole suite of products now that are just designed to make your primary stakeholders' lives life easier. And those are things that you can't do on day one. But I think if you take that seriously, that task seriously, you start to get credibility because honestly, that's genuinely what I care about day to day is like, how do we make them feel like a million bucks? And how do we make them feel like we've got their backs? And that's really what we're selling is reassurance that we've got them covered, that we've got their members covered. It's been very satisfying to get the feedback we do from care managers because they're the ones who are the engine of the company for us nowadays. Yeah. You talk about that empathy and, it, and transferring that empathy up to these not one-to-one customers like at their kitchen table, but then the, you know, almost the aggregator type of customers who represent a lot of the people out in the field. And I wonder, do you ever get the urge or is it built into your culture to kind of go, Hey, we're going to go visit somebody in the field now, just like we did back in the day and sit with them and see how our technology and solution sits in their lives, do you get a chance to do things like that? Or do you have to delegate yeah. things like that now? There is an aspect of that. I see sometimes talk to some of my team about, I do miss though. To me, it was a very exciting time in the company. I think just for the sake of scale and the size that we are, it would make maybe sense for me to do that as a, a kind of a discovery, product discovery aspect. But I think that we now have, we have a team of, of the people who install our services. So they're regularly gathering feedback on new products that we put out. Uh, we have a new design of our in-home system that's going to be coming out. Those are things that we always want to test first and get feedback on both the aesthetic design as well as the function. But so, yeah, we have more systematic ways of doing that versus, oh, Sanvit went in and like he was talking to stuff about us and he was taking out their garbage and doing all these other things. <laughs> and then, like, well, uh, and those are fun for me. I remember watching the Winter Olympics with one of the people I was, as in Plymouth, Massachusetts, watching the Winter Olympics because they wanted to do it. You know, those were fun for me. And I think that there were things that you can kind of learn organically by not like, force feeding product down someone's throat, which like nowadays like our team doesn't have luxury of time. Whereas back then it's like, yeah, okay, we don't have sales. So we got to get some sales. We have some time. <laughs> Versus now it's if I told my team, yeah, you should go and sit with somebody for two hours and, and then talk to them about the winter Olympics. They'd be like, oh, that's going to be a little bit tough with our schedules. But yeah, I think everybody on the team has to have that mentality and all of our customer service team. We have an outstanding customer service team, but we're regularly either on the phone with members making sure that they feel supported or they're in person with members. And we like to think that we go the extra mile, whereas companies like Comcast come into your home and they give you a four hour window and they're like, yeah, you know, we'll be here sometime between, you know, 11 and three. 
we're like, no, if we're going to be here at a certain time, it's going to be a very short window and we're going to make sure that we get you set up. And I think our care managers prefer that. And our members prefer that. And when we fail there, it's something that I take very seriously of making sure that we stay diligent about that, whether we're 87 members or 20,000, it's like, you got to treat every member like they're important. And I think that's something that's never going to change. I think for the company, as long as we're running it, it's something that's very important. I can appreciate the lamenting, the sort of loss of the early days. And I think we do that as entrepreneurs and humans. And I think it's where the next adventure usually comes from. And I want to get back to basics when I'm done with this one, wherever I've taken it. So resonate very much with that. And it's exciting because I do advise a fair number of entrepreneurs these days. I remember how hard it was getting up again. Like you're looking for mentors, you're looking for people to help you. And there's a certain mentality you have if someone has gone through it where I can empathize with the people who are like, yeah, like I had this cart and horse problem again. And it's like, all right, like how do we work through that? It's fun. I mean, for me, it's fun because like that's, I went through it. It was a time when we were putting our sensors on bulls. You're like, why were you guys doing that? It's, yeah, we were trying to figure stuff out. Why not do that? We also got to see a professional bull bracketing and met in the process. I'll never forget the old days. That's where the good stories come from. And they belong yeah. hung in the hall of fame, so to speak. No, it's true. I mean, I'll always look back on that fondly. And I think that without it, we wouldn't be where we are now. And that's the hard thing. You know, right now we're a team of about 30 people. And like, I think that 30 is a very good number because you have the ability to communicate with everyone. Like we do an annual retreat where everybody comes and like people know each other. And then there's always this kind of growing pains and scale where, you know, I've always worked for companies that are on the smaller side. So there's something to me that's very comfortable about that. And there's a question of, can you maintain that culture and the commitment to customer service and other aspects that you had when you're small? And I think that's something that we confront right now where we are. So it's definitely something that we think about a lot. Real stuff. I love it. Before we go, I like to ask all my guests as a leader of a B2B company, with your unique perspectives and experiences, what should be on the radar of all the other leaders who are listening over the next, let's say, couple of years? You know, it's obviously been a weird time. Everybody knows the last three years are just like absolute chaos and pace of change and all that business. But when you take the time to reflect, what should everybody be thinking about? Like those major issues that just maybe don't rise to the top at all times. Yeah, I think I would want to divide my advice into companies that have hardware and companies that don't have hardware. And the reason is just because there's different challenges and calculations you have to make. But I think for software companies, it's now less expensive than ever before to get started. So meaning to just to get product out there and iterate on it. I don't want to say that it's those cycles sometimes have to be long, the software cycles, and it requires labor and sweat equity. But if you have committed founding team, I think that you can get a lot done on much less money than you think. So a lot of founders think they have to raise a ton of money and then they take the dilution and then they regret it because they're like, oh, this investor is like riding me every day about how we got to get these sales and they don't understand the market opportunity. And they've essentially been able to get very favorable terms because we don't have anything yet and we took the dilution. So I think that I would encourage founders to stretch a little bit farther, especially if they're in software only. If they're in hardware, it's a different calculation because you need the money up front from somewhere. In our case, we were lucky with some things like the NIH money. We raised angel money as well. But like you have to find some way to get some product out in the market. And there's a couple of ways you could think about bootstrapping. One is you do some consulting gigs, whether it's you just try to encourage someone, whether it's the professional bull riding association or someone else to part with some money just as a consulting gig. And then that pays for things. 
But I think you need to demonstrate some grit where it's, if you just are like asking an investor to come and say, okay, I'm going to invest in inventory. And like, essentially I'm buying your first 5,000 units. Who's then paying for the marketing, like the cost per customer acquisition. Have you just forgotten about that? That doesn't right. just happen. So I feel like most of the startups that are tech focused, like you said, they often, they have a solution and they're searching for a problem. They need to reverse that. That's common. I'm not saying anything revelatory there, but I think that beyond that, it's okay. Maybe like I need to demonstrate my grit in some way in order to convince an investor to do what's maybe not the smartest idea for that investor, but like they appreciate my hustles. I think to the Airbnb story, if you ever listened to their founding story, it's amazing. They talk about how they like were, they were trying to sell the Airbnb rooms. Obviously they're not a hardware startup per se, but they couldn't, they didn't have money. So they started manufacturing politically themed cereal of like Obama O's and Captain McCain's during the 2008 election. And like it sold so well, but I think that the Y Combinator founder was like so intrigued by their hustle that he was like, all right, that's why I'm letting you into Y Combinator. And I think, you know, whether it's Y Combinator or it's your prospect, it's like, you've got to demonstrate your hustle somehow because if you don't appear formidable in some way, I think that you're just not going to be able to overcome the countless challenges that get beyond the funding in the early days. So I'd say that, and then just applying it to the current, everybody's talking about generative AI. I think there's a lot of hype in that world. And in the world of healthcare, I think some of it's applicable, but I would say that the advice I have for healthcare entrepreneurs is treat AI as something that you can use to automate backend tasks, not front-end customer service, not the human element of healthcare that's so important. If you do that, I think you're just going to lose. That's my bias. I think if we implemented it that way, we would lose. And we're seeing that in our industry. So people are replacing call center reps with AI assistants and robots. And, and I think that's, it could work. It's obviously cheaper for them, but it, I think that it also has runs the risk. The members are very turned off by that. That's how, where I see AI in healthcare. I think the same thing for other industries. I, apart from gaming, where gaming is one where, but that's not really a B2B opportunity, mostly. I think ultimately core behavior doesn't change, right? We have Maslow's hierarchy of needs. People need food, they need shelter. We live now in a distraction chamber and I don't want to get into the polarizing aspects of that, but I think that I've never been good at consumer businesses because I don't understand. If you ask me, what do I want to buy today? It's, I have my iPhone. I don't really need much else. Like, and then, like, you know, you obviously have like family needs, but I think that that's consumer businesses. I think it's, it's very difficult for me to advise. For B2B, I think a lot of this core needs don't change and you need to figure out how to de-risk your prospects. That means giving them something today that's very low risk for them. And then figuring out how you layer on and iterate on the other kind of visionary aspects of your platform. If you do that, I think that like you have a standing chance. If you don't do that, I think at least in healthcare, they're just way too conservative to give you the time of day. So that's my take. If you want to be your yeah. time of AI, it's like, wait, do that like year two or year three, but on year one, don't talk about generative AI. I can't even imagine talking to our prospects about generative AI. They would just laugh at that. Yeah. No, don't do that. I, I agree. You know, pay attention to all the enabling forces. And I can say that, yeah, in very quick time frames, we're saving tons of money using AI for things, but it, you can't trust it with the secret sauce, I think is what's important there. And you could feed it all kinds of data and get back some work that maybe you didn't feel like doing yourself. And otherwise just pay attention to that. And I love the, I love the de-risk concepts or de-risking for the prospect. Cause I think in, in many cases, that's a zero sum game, which is to say that if you're de-risking for the prospect, you're risking 
on your side. You really are yeah. taking it on. You're self-insuring that thing. And you talk about that grit or that hustle. That's a great example of, it's almost like sweat risk assessment. I believe in this thing so much that I'm going to take on the risk that we can do this. And I think that speaks a lot to the opportunity that entrepreneurs sometimes leave behind with that exact conversation. of. So basically you have an idea you want somebody else to pay for and you haven't demonstrated in any way that you can execute that thing. And maybe they can, but yeah, talk about car before horse. You know, I think it, it applies at that level too. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I, it's exciting times in our industry and I think in B2B, you know, it's, there's so many different opportunities. I think that it's a great time to start a company. People talk about, oh, the market's wacky. It has been, but I think that's, so those are always the best times to start companies in the midst of uncertainty and kind of shifts and industries transitioning in technology. So. Well, some bit does some conversation. I always enjoy these things that fantastic insights from your perspectives and thank you so much for coming out for anybody that is engaged or, or interested in continuing the conversation what channels can they best find you on so i'd say that linkedin is one that you can find me pretty easily there aren't too many summits on linkedin that's where you can find me and connect with me i'm not much of a social media user and there's our website which is www.humedichealth.com so if you're a care manager we always love to talk to care managers but that's how you can find me Thanks so much for coming to hang out. We really look forward to putting this out there. Yeah, thank you so much, David. It was great speaking with you. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.